Welcome to Masters in Trial, where I interview amazing civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. Back when they were admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried a minimum of 20 civil jury trials to conclusion just to be considered, and they had to be found to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with both their opponents and the trial court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator. I mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers, and I mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firm. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables civil trial lawyers to quickly and easily know the new civil case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results, bigger settlements, win more trials, and make more money in their law practice. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, everybody. This is Monty McIntyre, and welcome to Masters in Trial. And my guest today is Craig McClellan, who's an outstanding trial attorney representing plaintiffs in San Diego, but his practice is really nationwide. Now, Craig has obtained more than 145 verdicts and settlements in excess of $1 million each. He's been a three-time recipient of the Outstanding Trial Lawyer Award from the Consumer Attorneys of San Diego. His settlements and verdicts are frequently in the top 50 for the U.S. and California. One of his final arguments is featured in Million Dollar Arguments. Craig is the first and only San Diego attorney selected for admission to the Inner Circle of Advocates. This is a prestigious invitation-only group of the top 100 plaintiff trial lawyers in the U.S. He's a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, and he served as the president of the San Diego chapter of ABOTA. Craig has the distinction of having been voted by his peers as one of the best lawyers in America and at San Diego Lawyer of the Year five times, as well as a top 10 super lawyer for San Diego. And he was ranked as the number one attorney for all of San Diego in 2019. Craig has also been inducted into the San Diego Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame in 2021 and the Law Dragon Hall of Fame in 2022. Craig's law practice focuses on complex high-stakes litigation, and his cases include catastrophic personal injury and product injury liability cases, as well as business and intellectual property litigation. He began his practice in San Diego with the well-known firm of Loose Forward Hamilton and Scripps, and eventually started his own firm, which is the McClellan Law Firm. So Craig, welcome today. It's a pleasure to have you and thank you for joining me today. Uh, we're going to just have a conversation here about your experiences in law practice. And the first thing I thought I might ask you is, have you had any, um, you've had many trials and many great results, but have you had anything that's been satisfying to you that you can think of when you've got a great result for one of your clients in trial? Well, thank you, Monty. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I've been fortunate that I've had a, a number of results that uh, invariably create a lot of satisfaction for what it does for my clients. Um, the one that I like to talk about the most, though, is an old case that I had against Porsche involving a high-speed 930 turbo driven on the streets in La Jolla uh, by a woman whose husband uh, is his car and hers had broken down. So she took it. She was taking the vice president of her company, who was a Porsche fan for a ride, went around a corner on Prospect Street, lost control and went sideways and was impacted by an oncoming BMW. The reason I like to talk about the case is because it was a drawn out product liability case against Porsche. And it ended with the jury finding that the Porsche 
Turbo 930 was too dangerous for the average consumer hmm. without warnings or instruction. And uh, that it was unreasonably dangerous because of its turbo mechanism and uh, its handling. And what was particularly um, hard fought and memorable in the case was the falsified test report by Porsche. In other words, our experts said all these things about the Porsche after doing uh, road tests and race tests and everything else that could be done on it. He was an international uh, champion race driver who testified about the handling characteristics of the vehicle and the delay in the turbo and so on. But everything that he said was disputed by Porsche in its quote unquote function test, which is its factory report on the vehicle. To make a long story short, during the trial, I we, we had to go to court first to get the court to order Porsche to produce the test because they said it was a secret document that uh, they kept locked in the archives in Bysock. Uh, but we finally got it. And it said what Porsche said it said, the handling was normal, it understeered and all the right things. But during trial, a document came to my office and there was a, a little note on it. I got back from trial one day and my secretary handed it to me in this little all in caps type note, said, Mr. McClellan found this treatise on a recent flight to Stuttgart. Your name was on an accompanying note. So I looked at it and it looked like the same test report that they had already sent me, but I told her, let's get it out to the experts and make sure everything is the same. Well, it came back um, that instead of saying the handling was normal, it said it oversteered. And instead of uh, saying that it understeered, it said that the, the vehicle handling was something that should be addressed for the good of their customers. And we then went to court, got the judge to order that a true copy of that be brought to California. Um, so it was, and we had an expert come down from the crime lab in Santa Clara, spent all night going through it and testified that the changes uh, were made from the original to mm. the document that was presented by Porsche in the case. All that came out during the testimony of the U.S. president of Porsche uh, during trial. And it was quite an exciting time. It's quite an exciting case for that matter, for that reason and many others. Wow. And what was the jury verdict in that case? Well, the jury verdict was... Now, this was in 1983, I think it was two and a half million dollars. But at that time, that was tied for the largest wrongful death case verdict in California with the actor Audie Murphy's verdict. Um, so it was a good result back then. As a matter of fact, the judge cut it because he thought it was too big. It went on appeal. We cross appealed to reinstate the verdict and the appellate court reinstated the verdict. Great result, great result. Thanks. So thanks for sharing that. I know you've got many other stories like that. So Craig, when you are representing plaintiffs, one of the things that great trial lawyers do is you think about and you present the case in terms of themes when you're talking about the case with the jury. And I'm sure you've had lots of different themes because you've handled lots of different cases. But what are some of the most successful themes that you've used in your jury trials representing the plaintiff side of the aisle? Well, I think that uh, one that uh, that is used frequently is safety first or profit over safety. Um, but some more, I think, uh, some newer and more frequently used ones are, for instance, do your job. Um, that can be used in, in so many different kinds of cases where something happens because somebody didn't do their job, whether their job might be designing a vehicle correctly uh, to protect people in foreseeable collisions, whether their job as a truck driver might be obeying the laws of the road, 
um, whatever it might be, doing your job is a good one. And another good one, I think, is betrayal. Uh, betrayal can be used also in a lot of cases. Uh, if you rely on a doctor to perform uh, surgery with competence uh, and you're paid and injured, if you rely on a manufacturer that they produce the vehicle without defects to protect you in foreseeable collisions, if you relied on a driver of another vehicle to follow the rules of the road and you were betrayed, I think that's another good one. I also like using um, corporate responsibility because it kind of turns around a typical defense theme, which is personal responsibility. And so I think it's good to emphasize to the jury uh, that corporations also have responsibility. So those are some uh, themes that I think uh, have had and will have continued success. Great. Well, now you've, every time you've tried your cases, you've had opposing counsel and you've seen all kinds of great defense lawyers. What are some of the best themes you've seen your opponents use in the courtroom? Well, without fail, I think the most common one is personal responsibility. Whatever kind of case you have, they'll find a way to argue that um, it's your responsibility to have foreseen this or to have done that or something else. So that'll be their focus for the most part. Uh, in other cases, like say a slip and fall case, it might be watch where you're going. Um, but even that's kind of revolves around personal responsibility. So I think that is by far the, the main defense theme that I see. Okay. And at this stage in your long and very successful career, how many jury trials have you tried roughly? It doesn't have to be an exact number, but you, you might know exactly. Well, actually, I don't. Um, I don't know how many in total, um, but, you know, it's up there. Okay. More than 50? I don't think I've had... 50 yet. Okay. Well, that's great. So now what part of a jury trial in your experience and in your opinion is the most important? I think the most important is for Dyer. Okay. Um, and probably the reasons are obvious because, uh, you know, if you have the wrong jury, um, you can go through everything you want to do and you can do it perfectly, but the result isn't going to be what you want. Yeah. Well, now with, when you do voir dire, we've got this thing where there's some things you can control, but there's other things you don't control. Like you don't have any control over the panel that sent 40 people or however many come into the courtroom. When you're getting ready to do your voir dire for a case, um, and I'm just asking some of these questions, if they apply, they apply, if they don't, they don't. But in these days, is there any way that um, you're able to get any kind of a information on who your potential panel may be before it's sent to the courtroom? Just trying to get general information about the community or any other stuff? Well, here, the answer is no. Here, we don't get the sheet that shows us the veneer until we get to the courtroom. Right. Uh, but that doesn't stop us from getting information on the jurors because we can immediately transmit that electronically to the office where people be working furiously on everything you can think of, social media, Spokio, um, every possible uh, thing that there is to find what we can on the potential jurors as quickly as we can. Yeah, so we couldn't do that 20 years ago, but these days with social media, internet access, once you get that list of the panel, you can send a copy to the office and have people try to find out whatever you can find out, right? Correct. Okay, and in terms of your picking a jury and selecting the jurors, do you generally work with jury consultants? Do you not, and why yes or why no? Uh, we have worked with jury consultants, 
And I think jury consultants are usually a benefit because a big benefit in many cases uh, for the right kinds of cases because they have um, all kinds of experience in all kinds of cases. And they're familiar with all the studies of what jurors will do in given situations. Uh, so they, they can be a big help. Um, obviously, we don't use them in every case, but uh, but certain cases, I think they they are definitely a, a benefit. Okay, is there some criteria that you use in deciding when to hire a jury consultant? Is it the size of the case, or the issues in the case, or what is it? Well, it can be the size of the case, the issues in the case, where we're trying the case, and what state and what location. Um, for instance, we're much more familiar here in California with the attitudes of jurors than we are in uh, Nashville or in Arkansas or somewhere else. Uh, so if we're in another state, we most likely would be using the jury consultant. Um, and I think the case would have to warrant it in terms of the size of the case and uh, the complexity of the issues, the novelty of the issues. Um, and the danger of the issues. Okay. And in terms of uh, other states outside of California, are you able to get juror panel information earlier than the day of the trial? And how early can you get it to start doing your research in some states? Well, in some states, we've gotten them, I think, the day before. I don't remember any that we've gotten a longer time ahead than that. Okay. And then in terms of if you use a jury consultant, I'm assuming they're probably there with you in the courtroom when you're picking the juror and you're you're getting some feedback from them and you're also making your own evaluation of the potential jurors, right? Correct. What do you- You're there in the what, courtroom. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was gonna say, not only are they there in the courtroom, but normally we've done a number of focus groups with them. Um, possibly mock trials, but we don't really do those much anymore. Um, and they'll be there in the courtroom. They'll have uh, educated us on their thoughts and theories of the right juror for the case long beforehand. And then we work together in the courtroom. And in terms of uh, when you're picking a jury, uh, are there any kinds of I'm sure you're listening to whatever your consultant is telling you, but are there any things that you're looking for when you're looking for good plaintiff, uh, actually good jurors for your plaintiff's case in terms of just what you're generally looking for in addition to what the consultant is telling you? The only thing outside of that, and it's a very nebulous kind of thing is a lot of trial lawyers feel sometimes that they've made a connection, a, a particular connection with a particular juror or two or three, and they really want them on the jury. Now they know that the consultant, uh, and they've gone over it with the consultant, has, has the ideas on what kind of juror they should have, and maybe this particular juror or jurors they've made the connection with doesn't meet that criteria, but they want them because they feel they've made that connection. I've had that happen to me, and I know it's happened to others. Um, but but I think that uh, if you're hiring a consultant to do what they do so well, um, to the extent you can, I think it's best to rely on their advice. And that brings up an interesting question. So let's say if you have the feeling in a case that you've connected really well with somebody on the potential jury panel and the consultant is saying they're not somebody who fits the profile of your ideal juror very well how often might you overrule what they're suggesting go with your instinct i guess it depend on how much of a connection i think i've made and what i base that connection on um, my instinct would be to go with the jury consultant. A lot of people's instinct is to go with their with their own instincts rather than somebody else's. But um, 
it, it's really, really tough. It's tough because you got to make it on the spot. I mean, you're right there and yeah, and uh, there's just no good answer, I don't think. Okay. So now when you're picking your jury and there's a lot of different ways courts in throughout the country do things, um, but to the extent that you have, you know how many uh, peremptories you're going to have and you know how many you have left. Um, and if you know who's going to be moving into the next seat in the jury, how closely are you watching those people down the line to see whether you think they're good people or bad people when you're deciding whether or not to challenge a juror? Very, very closely. Before we challenge or when it comes down to that, before we challenge a juror, we want to make sure that whoever's up isn't going to be worse. And so hopefully we'll know everything we can about not only the 12 in the box, but about the net, the other 24 or 12 or whatever it is in the, um, in the seats, in the audience, because we'll have done our, our digital homework. We'll have also hopefully had a questionnaire completed by everyone. Um, so we will make decisions like on the spot as we go along before we exercise that challenge, when it comes down to the last few challenges. Early on, when you're just starting with your challenges, you know there's likely to be more, and it's a little harder to tell at that point because you may get three or four more for that seat before it comes to crunch time. Right. Okay. And in terms of uh, questionnaires, um, I personally, in my experience, think questionnaires are wonderful, but it's difficult often to get judges to do it, uh, let you get a questionnaire. How successful have you been in persuading a trial judge to let you have questionnaires so you've got that additional information before you start the voir dire? Uh, we've been pretty successful on it. Um, I think that uh, a, a couple of reasons. In California, I, if I recall correctly, CCP section 222.5 now has in it the judges should consider a jury questionnaire. I think I'm correct on that. Uh, but also, I think if the judge feels that it will save time, then the judge tends to be in favor of it. If the parties can agree on a questionnaire, then the judge will ra rarely disagree. And in terms of uh, picking your jury, uh, and I agree with your comment that maybe early on it's a little harder to tell, but if you get a little later on and you you have some peremptories left and you think there are some, um, your jury panel's pretty good, do you ever skip a peremptory to see if you get a little advantage over the other side, if you're pretty sure that they're going to throw somebody off? Yes, if I if I'm sure that um, that the other side has to strike a, a couple of people, more than one, maybe a couple people, and there's nobody currently on the panel that I feel I have to get rid of, I just have to get rid of, then I'll do that. Yes. Okay. And then as far as alternates, let's say if you you've got a five day trial or ten day trial. How many alternates do you want, depending upon how long the trial is? Well, of course, we usually want as many as we can get because we don't want to get down to having to stipulate to a smaller jury. But uh, but typically, the judge is going to tell us he's going to say it's a or she's going to say it's a five day trial or a ten day trial. I'm going to give you two alternates, right, or whatever it might be. The longer trials, of course, the more alternates you have. Okay, another thing I wanted to ask, and you mentioned this earlier, is um, you can do mock jury trials, you, you can also do focus groups, and you mentioned earlier that you don't do so much anymore than mock jury trials, but you still use a focus group and do that a lot. So tell us, tell me why you do the focus groups and why you don't do so much anymore than mock jury trials. Um. Okay, well, the mock jury trials um, we found are not reliable for the purpose that 
a lot of people use them. Um, by that, I mean, some people think that if you do a mock jury trial, that's going to be a prediction of what the trial outcome is going to be. And I don't think that's correct, especially because you don't have a lot of pick over who you get as the mock jurors. So it's kind of dependent on whatever jurors you have, who they think is putting on this mock trial, because a lot of times they'll tend to want to please you. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons, the evidence that comes in, how it comes in, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they're not, I, I don't think they're reliable. I also have concerns about the evidence presentation in a mock trial. For instance, if you want to see what the jury thinks of your client and you put your client in a mock trial, if you put your expert in a mock trial, is that potentially discoverable? Can, can the jurors who sign confidentiality agreements, can they still, when they read about the case, go to the defense lawyer and tell them, what happened in the mock trial or what so-and-so said or where they can get a video by subpoena or whatever. So I have a lot of concerns about that. As a result, if you do them, you usually just read little paragraphs of what the witness is going to say. And then, of course, the jurors conjure up in their own minds what that witness is like and whether they're truthful or not. So that doesn't do a lot of good. Um, so I really haven't found them very helpful. The one thing I do remember, though, about um, a mock trial is that we had we did one once, and we always do more than one. We do three or four of them um, on a weekend, let's say. But but we had one against a, a large power company in L.A. And one of the old standard rules of jury selection is you never want to pick jurors who know or who are in the industry that you're suing and who know the stuff and what's going on. So with that in mind, we didn't want any people who are with power companies, uh, electricians in particular, um, to be on this mock jury. But we ended up not having any choice because it was an area where there just a lot of people are employed in that way, and and we didn't have enough jurors without them. So they were on there, and lo and behold, they were all in favor of the plaintiff. Interesting. So it kind of it kind of dispelled that old tale about never having somebody in the industry on the jury because they were our best jurors actually, and the reason was because we were talking about the lack of safety at this particular high voltage power plant. And these people who worked in high voltage and low voltage power plants, guess what the number one thing on their mind was? Safety. Safety. That's right. <laughs> so they had all kinds of ideas on how this thing we were suing about could have been or should have been done. Oh, that's great. So tell me about the benefits of focus groups and what you've learned focus from them. Focus groups are great for so many things, and we focus group every case many times um, for all different kinds of things. Um, they're good to see what people's reactions are to particularly difficult issues. Um, I can give you an example. We had a case, for instance, a high-impact rear end on the, on the freeway into a vehicle and the passenger seat, the driver's seat too, but the important one is the passenger seat, what we call collapsed, what the defense called uh, uniformly deformed to, <laughs> to limit the, the stress or the energy on the passenger. But as a result of the seat back going back, the occupant was properly belted and everything, but slid from under the belts into the back seat the back of the back seat and ended up quadriplegic. Hmm. So we were worried that this was a big impact based on the damage to the rear of the Jeep and so on. And, um, and we wanted to see, because in product liability, one of the tests that you can use um, is the consumer expectation test. Would an average consumer expect 
in this case, the vehicle to protect them in this kind of a collision? Would they have an expectation on that? So we did a focus group and we showed them the pictures of the impact damage. We gave them a report of, of the speeds that were involved and we showed them the interior of the vehicle and the seat backs and so on. And 11 out of 12 and virtually all the focus groups we did said absolutely it would be their expectation that that seat back would have protected them and not failed like it did. Uh, so those kinds of issues which you are worried about or not sure about can be focused with very helpful um, results. And, you know, there's just so many issues in a case that you can get the opinion of a focus group. Like, I'm sure we'll talk about at some point what you do with bad facts. Bad mm -hmm. facts are a perfect subject for focus groups. Right. They can give you ideas. They they may think that they're not as bad as you do. They may think they're worse than you do, but usually they have some rationale, some justification for those bad facts that you hadn't thought about. And they give you some clue as to a way you may go and using those that you hadn't even considered. So they're, they're very helpful. They have to be done right, um, but they're they're very helpful. Yeah, that, so I was going to ask you about that. So that's great. We've gotten to that topic. And so you try to ask your mock jurors about uh, focus group people about how they react to potential bad facts. Yes, yes, we'll uh, we'll give them bad facts and see what their reaction is. We may yeah. limit information we give them to, to so we can focus on those things or we may give them more general overview and then let them see if they find it or if they, how much they think, give credence to it and that type of thing. Do you ever get any ideas from the focus groups on how to talk about the bad fact or what phrases to use? Have they given you good ideas? Absolutely, absolutely. It, it's surprising actually, um, you see sometimes in these focus groups, somebody will come up with a, a phrase or a word or two to take care of the bad facts or to uh, address the bad facts and the others will grab onto it and like it. And so, yeah, we do come up with, uh, with some things like that. Okay. One other issue that I wanted to talk about and focus groups is a great time is how do you deal with a sympathetic defendant in trial? Um, well, that is a little bit different. Um, I think with the sympathetic defendant, you have to address a few issues. Number one, you have to tailor your opening and your cross-examination a little bit differently than you might. Now, let me tell you what I'm referring to. A sympathetic de defendant is usually somebody with a disability, old age, or an extremely contagious, likable personality. And so it's not a defendant that the jury is going to dislike or want to get. And uh, so accounting for that, I think you have to um, look for a way to pass most of the blame to a co-defendant. Like for instance, if the if the defendant's employer is a co-defendant, then you know, well, this person did crash into my client, but one of the reasons was they weren't properly trained. And they shouldn't have been out there at that time in the condition that their vehicle was in, or this or that or whatever, so that the blame is pushed off of the sympathetic person to somebody more responsible in, in our argument. Um, so that's one thing you can do. The other I, I say is you have to tone down perhaps your cross-examination a bit right. and your opening and, and your closing in particular on, on blameworthiness, but it still has to be effective. It still has to, you have to make the point and when it comes to damages, you have to impress upon the jury um, that there's no discount for likability. 
I mean, if your client has lost his arm, it, it has a value regardless of whether the person that ran over it is likable, is old, or is disabled. Right. Okay. So let's say we've picked the jury, you've taken the information from the focus groups, you've picked the jury and you, you feel you've got a good one. Now you're going to start the trial. What's your strategy for your opening statement? Well, opening statement, um, I, my strategy is to tell a story. And, um, and I think one of the keys to the opening statement is that story does not start with the plaintiff. Because whatever the story starts with becomes the focus of the listeners throughout the story. So my stories start with the focus on the defendant or the defendants. And a picture is drawn with the story so that before I even get there, the jurors are guessing what's going to happen, what the consequences are. And, um, and then along the way, we pick up the defenses and dispose of them. And then the last part of it, of course, is the damage part. And, um, and that's a whole nother story, the story of the damages. And by the way, when you talked uh, earlier about themes, there can be a separate theme for damages. Right. And it often is. And, um, and that theme doesn't have to be a verbal theme. It doesn't have to be something that you say. It can be something that you see. For instance, in one case, we had a, um, a booster seat that we displayed to the jury that belonged to the dead child. Mm. And if you just ask the jury, where's the little girl that's supposed to be in this booster seat? That kind of became the theme of the damages in the case. And another one, there's a, a paraplegic young lady watching ballet being practiced. She used to be a ballerina who was practicing at school and wanted to become a ballerina. And mm. now she's just sitting there in a wheelchair watching it. You don't really have to have a, a verbal theme for something like that. Okay. Now, when you've given your opening statement and now you're starting to present your evidence, as you're doing your direct and cross of witnesses and getting the exhibits in, how are you trying to tell the story throughout the trial? Is it in a thematic method? Is it a topical method? Is it a chronological method? What are you trying to do to get the story across when you're putting on your case? Well, the factual story is, is probably fairly easy in most cases, what happened. Um, and that can be put on in direct examination of the appropriate witnesses. Um, and, and the more difficult parts become on liability, the reasons for liability, and so on. And I think that what I like to do is I like to start the story with the facts but and now we're talking about the trial not the opening statement so right but but i will i guess intertwine with those facts and it could be because of time schedule or whatever the testimony about that explains the cause of things why things happened who's who's to blame whose fault is it that this happened um, and those usually come through expert testimony and sometimes in a roundabout way through eyewitnesses um, and frequently through documents. So all of those things uh, play a part in the presentation of it. All of those things go into the planning because this is all planned out before we start trial. We know what facts we have to show. Um, what evidence we have to put in, who's going to be putting in that evidence, how they're going to be putting it in, and when they're going to be putting it in. And that's all mapped out and, um, and prepared along with the exhibits, the motions in limine, the jury instructions, um, and everything else before trial. Right. And so you're, I mean, as a trial lawyer, trial lawyers are kind of like movie directors. 
and you're trying to figure out how you're going to tell the story, what's going to be told when, but you also have some scheduling things where you might want to have somebody testify at a certain day and time, but they're not available then. So you just got to modify your approach and then make it work the best you can, right? That's right. It becomes like, like you say, like you're a director of a movie. So now you, instead of putting that evidence on chronologically, it's now going to be a flashback. Right. And, uh, or it's going to be a flash to the future. And so, yeah, you have to adjust and you have to be flexible, especially um, with judges now that are insistent on having witnesses available at all times. No mm -hmm. trial delay for witness whatsoever. Yeah. Now, yeah, I think the movie directors have it easy because they just get to tell their story. Whereas trial lawyers, you tell your story, then there's another director trying to tell them your story is no good. <laughs> so in terms of how you're presenting the evidence during trial, uh, do you use things like um, digital presentation software, like trial director or other tools to show your videos, show your clips of depots, show pictures? Do you, What do you use to present the evidence to the jury? We do. We use, uh, matter of fact, most of our evidence uh, is presented in digital form. I was involved in the very first all digital trial in the United States in uh, Indianapolis way back in, uh, I think it was 90 or 2003, maybe it was. Um, and so, yeah, we use uh, different software, but we present most things, most everything digitally. Okay. When you're impeaching a witness, do you prefer to impeach them with a deposition clip or reading testimony or showing a copy of the transcript? Uh, we typically have a clip prepared, uh, but I like doing all three for the effect. I mean, not at the same time on the same thing, but I mean, just for some variation for the jury. And, um, and sometimes it's pretty dramatic if the witness tells you something, let's say it's the polar opposite of what was said in the deposition. And you walk up to that witness after laying the groundwork and say, would you read to the jury how you answered that question in your deposition? And they read it and it's just the polar opposite of what they just said. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you want to make sure that you vary things and don't have every, just every time you ask them a question, they answer something, you show a video clip, you know, that, that loses its effect if you do it all the time, I think. Yeah, you definitely have to vary things up, don't you? So yeah. when you're in the trial and you're putting on the evidence, trying to tell your story, every once in a while, I'm sure you've had to deal with a difficult judge, somebody who maybe is, um, difficult for one reason or another, some of the rulings they're making or other things. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, I think when you say difficult judge, I think they're difficult usually for one of two reasons. Either they don't like your case. That could be one reason. Uh, the other reason is usually because they have, I'll call it quirks. They have certain rules that and procedures to be followed uh, that they insist on and that are unusual or different way of doing things than we're used to doing them. And um, and I think that we just have to, like it may be involved a different way they want you to impeach a witness, uh, a different place that they want you standing all the time in the courtroom. Um, uh, you know, just, I, you can name a whole bunch of things like that, how they want, like you can't use a video clip on cross-examination unless you do this and that and the other thing first or do something else which destroys the whole effect. Um, so you have those types of, of judges that are sticklers to their own rules that will cause you to have to make some adjustments. And that's the way you deal with it. You have to always be deferential, I think. Um, and you respectful. have to know the law. Pardon me? And respectful. 
and respectful. You have to know the law. You have to make a record. And you adjust your procedures to, to do the way it, they want it done because it has to be done that way and you do it pleasantly. So now you talked earlier about when you are making your opening statement, you'll typically start with the defendant and you want the jury thinking about the defendant. Uh, do you ever call the defendant as your first witness and cross-examine them under 776 or the similar rule in the state? And if, when you do that, why do you do that? I have done that, but I don't do that anymore. Um, so why not? I, I, I don't do it anymore for, for several reasons. Um, one is because I think that... Um, I like to have the jury, first of all, we've got the testimony of that witness locked in, in a video deposition. And so we know what that witness is going to say. And if they come into trial and try to change it, then that's great. That gives me great stuff for cross-examination. So I've got the testimony locked in. So the next thing I guess that, um, that comes up is the jury having a feel for the case. I like the jury to have a feel for the case before I put the defendant on so that they have some background. They've heard uh, from, they've heard the facts from the witnesses. They have a feel for the damages. They know what the injuries are uh, and they know why the defendant is responsible from the testimony of the experts or others. Um, so I think that frame of reference is important before I just throw somebody on and cross-examine them. And finally, I think the last reason is because I've spent all this time now during jury selection uh, trying to establish rapport with the jury to establish credibility, likability, if you will. And now I throw my first witness on and go after him. And it, it doesn't feel right. So... Uh, I think the reasons for doing that uh, from the past are mostly gone, but I do understand that there are reasons for doing it and why some lawyers do prefer to do that. Okay, so when you are, next question is when you're cross-examining witnesses, the uh, kind of the classic way that lawyers are taught in law school to cross-examine is to try to get only a yes or no answer and only ask questions where you know the answer. And I would call that more of the traditional cross, but there's a more kind of a wide open type of cross that some people have used um, like Jerry Spence and Milt Silverman in San Diego, where it's just, they're kind of telling their story and they don't care what the answer is so much. Do you use one or the other or both? Well, I use if I use both. <clears throat> you know, we learn in from the beginning. I think of uh, law school. Certainly, from the beginning of, of our trial of, of our trial practice, that we don't ask questions we don't know the answer to, um, and we never ask a why question because we'll get burned if we do. And <clears throat> to my way of thinking, once you ask that question, you lose control of the witness and cross-examination control of the witness is everything. Um, and that's true not only with lay witnesses, but also with expert witnesses. So for instance, if you say to an expert, uh, well, like, please explain to us why um, you are saying that A equals B. Well, then you've you've just lost control of that witness. That witness then takes over the examination, turns right. to the jury and starts explaining things to them and so on. And the same thing when you ask a why question to a witness. Having said that, I do ask what I guess you can say are open questions in the sense that I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I do that with questions that the answer can't hurt me no matter what it is. Um, for instance, um, if we have a case where, let's say a driver 
um, driving home from work in no particular hurry, runs a red light. Driver denies it. Two or three witnesses saw it, say he did run it. Uh, so if I ask that witness, <clears throat> do you agree, Mr. Benatz, uh, that running a red light when going home from work in no particular hurry would be careless? Now, if he says, yes, I agree, I've made my case. If he says no, then the jury thinks this guy is, I mean, he doesn't think it's careless to run a red light. Well, we're going to show him it's careless. So I can't lose no matter what he answers on that. Now, having said that, and because you don't ask these kind of questions unless you have experience, you have to watch out for a, cle a clever witness who will answer, well, not always. And so the mistake I think that uh, counsel that aren't so experienced will make then is they'll give up control of the witness at that point and say, what do you mean not always? But you just can't do that. You can't ask that question because it's probably a trap. And you turn over control then to the witness who will say, well, I think it's, it's okay to run a red light if you're looking both ways and you don't see any traffic and so on. So... It, it reminds me, Louis Neiser uh, once described bad cross-examination. He said, in cross-examination, as in fishing, nothing is more ungainly than a fisherman pulled into the water by his catch. <laughs> <laughs> and so you just don't want that to happen in cross. Well, I agree with you, Craig. I think with the classic training some lawyers make the mistake of not answer asking a question if they don't know the answer because like you i think it's true that in rare occasions it's not common but there are rare occasions where whatever they say it's not good for them so in those if you got to really think it out and you really got to consider the different responses and you could still be surprised. But if you've analyzed it, think, hey, there's no good answer they can give. I think that could be a great that I've seen that be a great cross-examination question. And, and boy, you brought up a good point, Monty. That's exactly what I do every morning when I run. I think about the witnesses that are going to be on that day that I'm cross-examining. And I think about if I ask this, what could they say? What are all the possibilities? What could they come up with? How could they say something bad? And so when I get up there to cross-examine, I feel pretty confident that I've thought of everything they could say and I'm ready for it. Yep, that's that's a great approach. So now when you are, uh, you've presented your evidence, you've gotten through the defense evidence of the case and you're now making your arguments, what's your strategy for your initial final argument and then your rebuttal final argument well nowadays as you know most judges uh impose time limits for argument and so i think a lot of lawyers uh tend to spend too much time on liability so they run out of time to properly develop damages and as you know um if you don't talk about something in your opening argument and the defense doesn't bring it up. You can't bring it up in your rebuttal. That's right. So you've got to cover damages, and you really have to cover all of the damage. You've got to cover it well in your opening argument. You can't leave any of the damages to rebuttal, and, and I'll tell you why I think that's true um, in a minute. But So I think that um, the opening argument is going to be much, again, like a compelling story, but this time it's using your theme. And it's bringing in the theme again and again during the argument. Um, and you're using it with the testimony of actual witnesses this time as opposed to opening. And you're using it with exhibits that you focus grouped 
you've taken your exhibits to the focus group and you've changed them as the focus group thinks would be more effective. And you're using those exhibits now uh, in telling the story and closing argument. And so I think you have to uh, do that. I think you have to dispose of the defenses, maybe as excuses during your opening final argument. And as I mentioned before, damages, I think, are another story that's told in the opening final argument, including different and more exhibits. And then you follow up with an ask for money for the damages. And then I like to justify that ask um, with analogies, because I think analogies are things the jury can relate to. They know the subject. Uh, it gives you credibility. It gives you um, a chance to tell kind of another story to them. What's and a great damage they... analogy these days? Well, there's some that, uh, when you say these days, I think there's some that that change over time uh, in terms of the subject, but the same ideas are present. Uh, for instance, if you had a client that was uh, paraplegic because of the fault of the defendant. I might give an analogy, for instance, that would go something like this. I might say, well, ladies and gentlemen, what if there was a doctor in some remote place in the world uh, who had a procedure whereby they could cure the paralysis in Mrs. Smith, where they could give her an injection, a series of injections or operations that would cure it. But that procedure and those in injections are so rare, so rare and so expensive that it would cost $100 million, literally $100 million to make Mary whole again, to not be paralyzed and to be able to walk. Well, I think there's probably none of you that wouldn't sign a verdict for $100 million if it could cure her. So haven't you really determined her damages then? I mean, why should her damages be less if she can't be cured than if she can be? Great example. Great example. Let me ask you this question. In your opening statement at trial, I'm guessing that you're probably a little more objective and not emotional and talking about what the evidence is going to show when you're now in your final argument and you're talking to the jury you show more emotion as an advocate i think it depends it depends on the case it depends on uh the defendant uh but but yes you you definitely um you show you have to show that you care uh, and you have to show that the jurors, to the jurors, that they need to care. And sometimes, uh, most of the time, that creates more emotion. But the problem with being emotional is that if you go too far, then it looks phony. And they think you're trying to play them. And so it's a fine line there that you don't want to cross. And I think it's better most times to let the jury have the emotion, to let the jury from your story be tearful or be sad or be uh, mad or be enraged or be ready to write a verdict for the right amount. Hmm. So let's say we, we the jury's gone out, you've, they've deliberated, they've returned a verdict. Um, whether it's a good verdict for your client or whether it's something you're not happy with, do you always talk with jurors or do you sometimes not talk with jurors after the verdict? We try to. Sometimes um, we can't just logistically because the court will ask us to remain and cover some other matters and the jurors are gone by the time we get out there. So we try to have people from the office catch them after the verdict and talk to them and try to find out um, the answer to different questions that we want to know. 
So let me ask you this. We're getting close to the end of our time, and I really appreciate your sharing all this great experience. What's the best piece of advice that you received when you were a young trial lawyer that you would give to a young lawyer who's starting their trial practice and trying to become a very good trial lawyer? Um, I think there's probably three things. One thing I've never forgot that, that, um, uh, that I was told as a young lawyer is never take a case for a friend that you wouldn't otherwise take because you'll end up losing the case and losing a friend. <laughs> and I, I've kind of taken that to heart and I've tried to stick with it and it's been tough sometimes, uh, but I think that was good advice. And another one um, I think is not to be discouraged or disillusioned um, when you have a bad day at trial because trials go up and down like a scoreboard in a in a football game and and you may have a bad day the next day may be a great day all that matters is the end result so not to let yourself emotionally react to good or bad days but probably the most important advice for which there's no shortcut is that to be a success with everything to do with trial practice requires extreme preparation. Preparation is the key to everything. Yeah, you're probably spending thousands of hours getting ready for trial, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. It's just a long process. You got to do all that prep work to be ready when the trial starts. Not only to be ready with the knowledge of everything in the case, but you know what it does for you, Monty, it, it, and you know this, is that if you're totally prepared, you go into that courtroom knowing that you know more about the case than anybody there. And so there's nobody that can surprise you. There's nobody, you're, you lose your nervousness. I mean, you, you become confident in your knowledge of the case and that you're the one in the courtroom that knows the most. Yeah, I think when you do that hard prep work, and it's a grind, it allows you when you're in the trial to get in that flow state of you're there, you're prepared, you're just reacting to what's happening at the moment. That's right. And that's a great place to be. So Craig, yeah, is there you... any, go ahead, is anything else you're thinking? No, I'm... No, I was just going to say, yeah, when things that preparation allows you, if things do come up that never came out in discovery or weren't known for some reason, maybe should have been, but weren't, you know the case so well, you can immediately assess where that's going to go and what's going to oppose it. Right. So, Craig, uh, it's been a wonderful discussion and Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with folks. I uh, appreciate having you. Anything, any final thoughts or suggestions or tips you want to give to folks before we finish the interview? Uh, two, yeah, I can, a couple of tips I think that uh, I might mention that I've learned maybe the hard way over the years. And that is that um, I think sometimes we're too detailed. Um, we spend a lot of time in trial on the details of everything. We, we as trial lawyers, we just don't want to leave anything uncovered. And we want to make sure we dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And I think that that detail can hurt us. The jurors are never going to know the case like we know it. And, um, and I think you have to... Uh, realize that trials are decided more on impressions than on detailed facts. Secondly, I think that we have to shorten our approach to all aspects of trial, be it direct exam, cross-exam, openings, closings, the whole works. I think we have to be uh, brief because if you look at nowadays, uh, everything is presented to basically the two-minute mind. All news stories are two minutes or less. 
And and people are used to that. Everybody's used to that. They don't want to sit there and listen on and on and on and on. In fact, the studies show that every two to six minutes, people, jurors, will will shift their thinking, will shift to a different subject, will change their train of thought. So you have to be attuned to that and you have to move things quickly and you have to change your focus continually to keep the jurors' attention, keep their interest. And you can do that. You can present the case in a, a brief fashion just as persuasively as if you took forever to do it. And you can see examples of that in television shows. You spoke about being a director of a show. If you look, go, going way back to, say, L.A. Law, up to now, Law and Order, all the legal shows, they'll present a case, the whole case, even all the facts leading up to it, within an hour. And at the end of that, after you see it, you're never left, left wondering, well, gee, they didn't ask about this, or they didn't ask about that, or he didn't mention this in his argument, or he didn't mention that. You think you've got the whole picture. And so I think that the, the brevity is, is very important. And the final thing, and this is really, really hard for lawyers to do, is just, just to shut up when they've made their point. I mean, you, you go into cross-exam, for instance, and you have points that you feel you need to make. And sometimes you make those points in fairly short order. Now, you've got a list of other things you can cover, but you really don't need to. You made your point. And it's hard for lawyers to stop when they're ahead and just shut up. But if you don't, you risk losing the jury and all the detail that you continue to go on about. And um, and you also expose yourself to other risks that weren't there if you would have just stopped then. So those are the three things I would say. Boy, those are great points. You got to make things simple. You got to make things shorter. And it's hard work to do that because you have to think about it. You have to edit, edit, edit. You have to cut, cut, cut. And that's the hard work you have to do to try to make it as fast and simple as possible. And like you say, <laughs> when you've made your cross-examination points, sit down. <laughs> That's well, right. Craig, uh, it's a wonderful way to start this master's in trial because you are a master in trial. And thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us today. I really appreciate the time. I know our listeners will.